0: This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, KCBX's grape nut Betsy Nash will take you along as she learns about local wine vintages.
1: Within California or within the United States, vintage is a legal definition, so when there is a vintage date, 95% of the, the wine in that bottle has to come from the stated
0: vintage Also, you'll get a look at a new book about the history of the local dairy industry.
2: One of the points that I really wanted to make in my book, that we had a lot of dairy people come from other states within the United States, as well as from other countries. The Danes had a large presence in this community,
0: and whoever talks about it? these stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon, it's Monday, November 7th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangerman. Let's start with The Grape Nut. Hi,
3: this is Betsy Nash and welcome to The Grape Nut. I'm in the Edna Valley today and going to be talking to the winemaker at Center of Effort Wines, but I had to come and look at all this beautiful uh, lavender that is out here planted around. It's just a gorgeous spot here down in the uh, southern part of the Edna Valley. Uh, but it's kind of windy and a little noisy out here, so let's go inside and I'll introduce you to Nathan Carlson, the winemaker at Center of Effort. Well, we already know that South County has cooler weather and is therefore more amenable to growing Pinot Noirs and Riesling, Chardonnays, Sauvignon Blancs. And over the grade where it's hotter, it's better for cabs, Zins, Syrahs, etc. But what about the different years? What about different vintages? And what the heck does a vintage mean anyway? So my guest today on The Grape Nut is Nathan Carlson, who's the uh, general manager and winemaker at Center of Effort Wines. Oh boy, are we gonna have a great time today. You have opened up how many wines? What are we going to do today?
1: We're gonna talk about vintage. And so I opened up five different vintages or years of our estate Pinot Noir. So we can kind of talk through the different years and how they left their mark on the wines.
3: And we'll explain what vintage means and all of that sort of thing too. Uh, Before we get too far in, I just want to talk about center of effort a little bit. My wonderful son-in-law gave me a subscription to Wine Enthusiast. And you were cited in one of those editions. Tell us about that.
1: So we're an all estate winery and everything I do here is to try and tell the story of our property and and the, the grapes that we grow here.
3: I think we're getting to understand that kind of a, a language here on the Grape Nuts, so looking forward to this. All right, so Nathan, let, let, kick us off. When we talk about a vintage, what are we talking about besides just dates on the bottles?
1: <laughs> well, uh, vintage is a concept that, that comes to us from the tradition of wine, and I think it was a way to recognize that each growing season kind of marks the wine and leaves behind its, its imprint on how the finished product uh, turns out. Within California or within the United States, vintage is a legal definition. So when there is a vintage date, 95% of the the wine in that bottle has to come from the stated vintage. Okay. And you can think of vintage essentially as growing season. So the, the grapevine will go dormant over the winter. About February, it'll start to push buds, and everything that happens to it from that point on will culminate in the harvest in generally September or October. And so you can think about it as the year that the the wines were grown and harvested. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, it could be a little different. You may have a bud push in September and harvest in March, but a similar concept still.
3: But I'm sure that the winemaker's hand is involved in making a good vintage not just the weather or whatever, um, whatever the calendar does. So do you count the time until it's bottled as being part of the vintage?
1: Yeah, I mean, it could take two or three years until mm-hmm. it's finally bottled. Yeah, and I think the caretaking of that, of that wine through that time will also have an impact, but there's really nothing you can do with grapes that are subpar. Mm. You know, I, I think mm. the quality is capped by the time that you pick that fruit.
3: And so what are we tasting today? You opened five wines. Are they all Pinot Noir?
1: This is all Pinot Noir. It's all the same bottling. The center of effort is state Pinot Noir. And so from year to year, this is the wine that we, we call it our flagship, and this should represent the best of the vintage every year. And it should have some kind of kinship from year to year, but it will have a, its own personality based on how the vintage was that year. The wines in front of us span 10 years from the time of the youngest wine that was just bottled last year to the 2011, which is from quite some time ago. There's even vineyards that we've replanted or we have different clones that are starting to make their way in. Or maybe we've learned some things differently or brought some new tools into our winemaking.
3: This is going to be great. This is Betsy Nash, and you're listening to The Grape Nut on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. My guest today on The Grape Nut is Nathan Carlson, winemaker and general manager at Center of Effort Wines in the uh, Edna Valley. I, mean, I can't believe you opened a 2011 Pinot. Thank you. I'm very excited about it. Start telling us what these different vintages mean and what, what I'll be tasting.
1: Well, I think that to me what the wines mean is a little bit of memory of what was happening that year. And certainly when we look all the way back to 2011, this was my second year uh, making the wines here on the estate. And it was a really difficult vintage in that we had really poor weather during the time that the grapevines start to flower. And when they, when they flower, if we have just some dry kind of warm breeze, that's ideal. And they'll pollinate well and mm-hmm. they'll have a good amount of fruit and mm-hmm. everything will be very regular. In this vintage, we actually had some freezing rain in early April when the when all of our fruit was flowering and being an estate winery we don't buy fruit from elsewhere oh. so our our eggs are all in this one basket right, right. and so we had really low yields um i think that we yielded about 1.4 tons per acre wow. when we're usually trying to do about a little over two tons per acre as a minimum wow there can be times when you have low yields and it contributes to quality. In this case, it was kind of a prolonged bloom. And so the fruit was really out of step with itself, even within the, the same vineyard block. And so there was a lot of need for hand sorting and for mm. careful pick decisions to make sure we had pretty good ripeness at, at the time of harvest. And in fact, we bottled eight barrels of this vintage when usually we're bottling more like 40.
3: Oh, my gosh. So
1: that was a decision that that was what we could be proud of bottling that year. The 2011 was a very, was kind of a very hard and kind of wound up wine when it was young. And with aging, because it had so much kind of intensity when it was young, it's now kind of softened. It shows a lot of the sort of secondary flavors and aromas that come from careful aging.
3: Oh, that is, that is delicious. I don't think I have any pinots that are this old, that is good. I can taste the fruit. It's not covered up by the tannins and and such. It's really, I don't know if if I just thought of this word or you said it's blossomed into this beautiful, Yeah, there's a real floral
1: character, violets and faded, maybe rosehip. And the fruit has gone from being really fresh and bright and kind of cherry-like to being more like jam or uh, coffee or something.
3: Yeah, yeah, excellent. Should I be surprised you still have 2011 bottle around?
1: We don't have a lot of it. There's a few bottles and I pulled one off the shelf today. We do try to hold back a little bit of a library of our wine so we can go back to it and revisit it. Recently, we released um, a vertical of Pinot Noir to our wine club members. What that means is a vertical is all the same wine, but from vintages in a sequence. So we, we released the 16, 17 and 2018 Pinot Noir to them. And we had a little bit of a, a release party here where we talked through the differences in the years perfect. and how it affected the outcome of the wines.
3: Yeah, perfect. That's exactly what I, I want to explore today.
1: I think it was interesting too to kind of hear from everyone there. And there's a lot of disagreement about what's their favorite wine. And I think sure. that that's what's um, what's good about wine. There's not a right answer. It's more of an appreciation of something that it kind of calls to you from the wine, I think.
3: Yeah. I think you started out by telling us this area here kind of has the same sort of weather all the time
1: it has a pretty predictable climate and and the weather is fairly predictable or follows cycles that are pretty normal but we do have times that things go out of out of bounds and that's happened in 2017 in 2020 um, this year 2022 we were almost up to 100 um, 109 degrees on this property. Oh. We're four miles from the Pacific Ocean. Wow. But that's exceptional, and it was damaging. Um, it was damaging to the fruit that was really close to ripe. It kind of oh. pushed it across the mm-hmm. edge. So,
3: mm-hmm. when that happens, um, does it? I mean, it, does it burst the grapes or something?
1: Yeah, it certainly can. Especially, I think that Pinot Noir being a pretty thin-skinned variety. Oh, that's right. Once it's in the last kind of five percent of its ripening, it just um, it can't take very much heat. Mm. And so when we did when we do see heat events coming, we typically will try to irrigate and make sure that there's plenty of water to the grapes if they're not ready to come in yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has kind of that's been the case in this vintage that we we had fruit that wasn't quite ready to pick, and unfortunately when the when the heat spells move through you you pretty much have to just get in there and take the take the fruit in after that and kind of salvage it. The fruit that's less ripe typically can recover, but it may stop the vine from kind of doing any further ripening for a couple of weeks. Oh. So you kind of stall it and just stunt its
3: development. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> I no. mean I mean yeah. really it sounds so complex.
1: Yeah other things we're dealing with a lot more frequently Lately is um, kind of lack of chilling in the in the winter time, mm. and so that can be a problem too. The grapevines really need a period of dormancy, and if you know, especially young vines, they may not they may not want to go to sleep for the winter. <laughs> and then um, when that happens, you come through and prune in the springtime, and they'll come out of their dormancy and start to grow in real irregular ways, and mm. so you don't have good tight kind of uniformity throughout the vineyard, which is really what you're trying to do. In a quality wine grape growing, you're trying to get your vineyard block to be on more or less the yeah. same path of ripening. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, so that you can do the same timing and treatment to all of it. Yeah, yeah.
1: it doesn't yeah. take much kind of underripe or overripe to really throw your the balance of your of your wine off.
3: Let's taste the 18, yeah. or should we leave that to last since it was ideal conditions?
1: No, I think let, let's taste the 18 so to me, the um,
3: mm.
1: I mean, I, I think what I get is this. Uh, there's that plum kind of character, ripe plum, but it's being a very young wine. It's kind of monolithic in a way. Like there's a lot of that intensity of the fruit, but I think that as the wine ages, you'll get more interesting aromas starting to develop as well.
3: I did get what almost smelled to me like um, smoke, and I definitely got plums. They're all delicious. I'm sorry, I'm not very good at this.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> This is Betsy Nash, and you're listening to The Grape Nut on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. My guest today on The Grape Nut is Nathan Carlson, winemaker and general manager at Center of Effort Wines in the uh, Edna Valley. And we're talking about different vintages. What makes a good vintage? Apparently, 2018 was ideal growing conditions in the Edna Valley. So that's that about how far we've gotten, but I invite you to join us as we explore more vintages. What was 2017 like?
1: So 2017 vintage kind of mirrored what we saw this year in 2022. So a lot of wind during the springtime that uh, diminished the fruit set. And we knew that we were about 30% down from normal crop yields right from the start. And then that was compounded by some heat storms right at Labor Day. Mm. And so in 2017, you kind of got, for us, it was sort of the, there was two harvests. The fruit that was really pretty ripe and could almost come off was definitely affected by that heat storm. And then the other less ripe fruit kind of continued through on a pretty good path and actually came off with a lot of energy and freshness. We were pushed to using a little bit different sections of the vineyard than normal oh. in making this blend overall this has been really a favorite a mid-weight pinot noir there's kind of that red plum character that we get in our fruit here all the time when you say you smell smoke in some of the wines there's always kind of a there's always a barrel component kind of a roasty um, french oak um, note and so i really believe when we blend pinot noir we want those elements in balance like the the fruit and the that should balance with the tannin and Mm -hmm. the kind of brightness or acidity and, um, and French oak kind of brings a nice uh, kind of framework
3: for it all. Well, this is much brighter to me than the 18.
1: I always published our, um, some basic analysis for our wines. And so you'll note um, pH is a super important thing to look for if it's provided by the winery. The lower the pH is, the higher the effective acidity. And so 2017, oh. you're definitely picking that up in your taste, mm-hmm. that it's more bright and fresh. You can think of pH, it kind of sets the clock on the wine. And for, for Pinot Noir, which doesn't have huge tannins like some of the other right. big reds, it really depends on the acid for how the wine develops over time.
3: And of course, that's not on the bottle, right?
1: I think that I see it published a lot on um, website tasting notes, those oh, kind of things. Okay. And I think that people in in the trade or people that collect wines look at it. But beyond that, it's more of a... I don't know, maybe more of a party try to know like <laughs> <laughs> what, what, you know, you can follow how the vintage played out and, and that will have definitely a marking on the, on that wine.
3: So Nathan, let's uh, talk now about the 2016.
1: So the 2016 vintage is really lovely and it's, um, it's a wine that we've held a little bit back for some restaurant accounts. And so even here on the Central Coast, you're gonna find this in some high end by the glass or uh, you know on the wine list. And it's a wine that's in great shape to pair with food right now. 2016, after a number of vintages that were just marked by pretty strict drought, we had a little bit of rainfall in that winter, and it really recharged the vines and gave them some energy and growth.
3: I can't believe how different this smells from both the other two. Okay, I'm going to drink now, so there'll be a moment of silence. (laughs) Oh, that's my favorite, I think, so far. It's making my mouth water. You know, mm.
1: the, the, um, the 16, it has like this, there's a freshness. It's not, the, the fruit isn't super ripe, and yeah. it's balanced by some sort of herbal tones and some floral tones, and it is, I think it's just really suited for, um, for pairing with food right now.
3: Well, that be true of other vineyards in the area, too. Other makers of, of growers of Pinot Noir, I know you're right across the street from kinsey
1: they make some really lovely pinot noir they're part of a trio of wineries that make wine from the stone corral vineyard yes which is kind of a continuation of the soil series that we mm-hmm. have here oh okay so i oh, know
3: tally has stone corral uh-huh.
1: yeah. yes tally does stephen ross and oh, then okay. um kinsey and so those wines are you know it's the sand that's really limiting to the growth of the vine and so it makes for fairly intense wines but usually that Stone Corral is one of the first vineyards I see picked around here. Mm. It wants to mature pretty early.
3: So again, if the 2016 in the same sort of conditions, the same type of soil and the same vintage, they should all be pretty good.
1: It may come down to just intention from the winemaker. Like what were they trying to do? Certainly you can make a wine that's more delicious and ready to drink early mm-hmm. by going a little riper. You can make it leaner and more... Um, more angular, and that may help the longevity as well. But I think you almost have to get to know each estate and know uh. to some degree how they think about what they want to bring into the world with their wines.
3: What's this one here we haven't tasted?
1: I brought a 2019, and so this uh-huh. is a wine that I don't even know that well since we've bottled it. Once we bottle the wines, we kind of tuck them away for a while and let them, um, let them kind of develop. So I poured, when I poured these wines, I poured the youngest wine first to let it have a little bit of time with air. You know, Pinot Noir especially will change over time in the glass just by reacting with air. Mm -hmm. So it's worth, that's kind of why Pinot gets poured in these big glasses where it can kind of hold the aroma.
3: Definitely the tannins, they're all over my tongue, but I can still taste some fruit. So that's,
1: that's a good sign. It is interesting. Is like the the fruit character is a little more towards like orange peel or something here. Like so, sort of, there's a kind of more bright citrus character, and it is pretty tense right now. I think that both the 19 and the 18 they're pretty young wines, and they they would benefit either from being just open ahead of the meal or or just in time in the cellar.
3: And as always, we we talk about what should we pair it with. It's Favorite pairing is coming up, isn't it? Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, actually, Pinot is a great a great wine for Thanksgiving because it it isn't um, you know big red wines like fat. They love a ribeye, or they mm-hmm. like you know, right. they like to have that to to work against. Whereas Pinot Noir can do very well with with game. When turkey's good, it's really really delicious. The Thanksgiving meal traditionally has so many things on the table. That's true. Yeah, you need acidity, which Pinot Noir trades on acidity a lot. And then it's more gentle. It can kind of get out of the way of other flavors sometimes, too. Mm. I like whites at Thanksgiving as well, Mm -hmm. just because they're more versatile. But for red wines, yeah, I think that with flavors like squash and turkey, Pinot Noir is really a great choice.
3: Well, how about the green bean casserole?
1: Ah, I don't know.
3: (laughs) know. (laughs) Come on. Uh, Maybe some
1: uh, Pinot Sherry or something.
3: (laughs) Oh, very good. All right. That that works for me. (laughs) Yeah. My guest is Nathan Carlson, the winemaker and GM of Center of Effort Wines, and we're tasting a lot of Pinots, all from different years, and it's, and it's just absolutely fascinating to talk about vintage. And sometimes there are non-vintage wines, so no date on it. What's the story with those?
1: Probably the most famous non-vintage wines are Champagne. Like mm-hmm. There is really traditional there that the Champagne houses will have a really defined style, and to maintain that style, even though... Champagne is very far north and has an enormous kind of vintage variation, they they hold back some wines to make sure that they always have a very consistent baseline for their their main bottlings.
3: Oh, that's interesting. I don't see many non-vintage wines anymore. I don't see them
1: much at all in the kind of fine wine end of things in the in the United States. I think in California we're really blessed. Even our difficult vintages maybe are generally pretty good compared to what can happen in Burgundy or mm-hmm. or other places in Europe. I mm-hmm. have um, I have a friend in Chateau Nifty Pop, and I know that he had a you know just a disastrous late summer with hail oh. storms. Oh, I remember. Yeah, we just don't we don't tend to have that. We've had some other challenges lately, but I don't think it's something that really marks a vintage as a, you know, something to not buy.
3: How about the big jug wines? Those are usually non-vintage, right?
1: Yeah, in a non-vintage wine, it gives them ability to blend yeah. um, for For more that more consistency, consistency. right? Yeah. That, that
3: makes sense. Yeah. I think the first wine I drank... Was Vicente, actually, and then Rhoda. but then, <laughs> then it was Gallo Burgundy, and sure. then I liked the Hardy Burgundy, you know. <laughs> but you know, we've come we've come a long way uh, since then.
1: Let me think about the um, so Appalachian rules here in California. In talking about non-vintage wines, sometimes there are instances where there's more blending across the vintages. Yeah. Um, if you see a wine like ours that says Edna Valley or Napa Valley, or another appellation, that's Mm -hmm. a place name. Those have to adhere to the 95% rule. Mm -hmm. If the Ah. place name is California, or even Central Coast, I think you're allowed up to 15% off vintage. Okay. And so that gives flexibility for wineries that if they have surplus from one year, they can blend it to the next year. And so okay.
3: Forth. All right. And then that's like for someone who wants to really have almost the same thing every time and know that it's going to be consistent. Yeah. There's yeah. Um,
1: there's wineries that that's very, very important that they're looking for the style of the wine to hit a mark mm-hmm. year after year. Mm-hmm. We have great, you know, we have really great producers here locally that do that for their larger volume wines. Mm-hmm. and yet they still make really um, individual wines from each vintage as well on their that you know they're more special.
3: I'm sitting in the beautiful Edna Valley with Nathan Carlson at the center of Effort Wines and we're looking out on a gray day we actually are expecting rain today.
1: This is a cold front coming through mm-hmm. usually cold rain is a lot less of a problem if you remember in September we had 109 degrees <laughs> and then Three or four days later, we had yes. you know half an inch of rain. Yeah. It was from a Mexican storm, so it was very humid and warm, and that is the worst conditions uh, for grapes.
3: Let's uh, summarize. If I'm looking for wines and I don't have this extensive wine enthusiast 2022 vintage chart or 2019 or whatever, where should I start? I really have to come from a place of my own knowledge, my own taste, don't I?
1: Yeah, I think that it's a a research project that could be a lot of fun (laughs) to dig into. I think that it's always good to have a a reputable wine merchant that you can go to and talk to them about their ideas on on the wines, and you will learn for your preferred wine style or region, it's going to be different. Bordeaux is going to probably want to age longer than California Pinot Noir, for Mm -hmm. instance. As you look at the vintage charts, what's the good vintage for California? And I think that a lot of times, you know, this one is really good. It breaks it down to Santa Barbara, the Central Coast, Napa, Sonoma. So this is much more specific. I often see just, you know, California, and they, they rate the vintage. And there's so many things that are different five hours drive north Absolutely. from us here.
3: Absolutely. I've seen those.
1: And when I meet people that are just getting into wine, sometimes they'll believe, believe that the older is the better. And that's yes. not the case always. Okay. And there, there's times that... um that older can be riskier <laughs> in some ways. There's certainly a kind of sweet spot where you can feel like that wine's probably in the in the right spot. And generally that, you know, for California wines is in the earlier part of their lives generally. Hmm. And I think that as wines get older, you lose some of the fresh fruit, yes. but you get more interesting herbal and tea kind of flavors, hmm. ideally. If you have a wine that seems oxidized or exceptionally browned, that might have gone past its best days but i might buy three bottles of the same wine and then open them over a period of time and kind of notice how they develop maybe i'll buy six bottles and there's a little variation even within each bottle but Mm. there there can be times that i've gone past the best days to drink the wine as well
3: yeah it's a matter of practice folks if you're going to be good at this you need to practice 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 (laughs) take it from me any final thoughts Nathan?
1: I think if you have an opportunity to open a vertical of wines, that can help you. Here on the Central Coast, there's so many winemakers and people involved in wine. And I, I'm, I know that there's a lot of information you can get just by talking to people in the business. One of the best things about vintage wines is just thinking back to what the world was like when that was growing and, and mm. kind of revisiting that time.
3: Thank you. This has been great. And we Grape Nuts learned last time when talking about tasting. There are no stupid questions. And, but you just have to ask. Just ask. So now we can uh, learn all about vintages. Thank you. I love having you out here. Thanks. All right, thanks. Once again, thanks to Nathan Carlson and Center of Effort Wines. I hope you can get out to Center of Effort
0: and any place on the Central Coast and learn about wines. Talk to you next month. Betsy Nash is the grape nut, and you can join her on KCBX Issues and Ideas on the first Monday of each month. <laughs> Up next, KCBX contributor Tom Wilmer stopped in to visit the couple who fronts the band War and Treaty as they talk about music, about being a veteran, and taking the family on the road. <laughs>
5: Hey everybody I'm Michael
6: and I'm Tanya and
5: we're the war and treaty
7: where did war and treaty come from
6: <laughs> well we have two reasons why we named ourselves war and treaty but the first one I started from us having an argument about the name itself uh-huh. we um...
7: well somebody had to come up with something <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to start the argument
6: exactly we had changed the name about seven times and this one time Michael was ready to change the name again and I said no Look, Michael. This is this is not the war. You know, we're not going to get into a, another argument about this. We have to figure out a way to have treaty with this. And he stopped me in mid-sentence and was like that's the name of the band you know so that's how the name derived and then mm-hmm. of course as our our marriage went on i learned that michael had served in the iraq war as a american soldier in the army and it just made sense the war and treaty and it's it defines our relationship you know the love that we share mm-hmm. and the balance that i think everyone has in in life you know love and war love and hate
7: back up even further in your <laughs> lives when and how did music start resonating with you? Was it in church
5: oh kid? For me, uh, music has always been a part of my life from the childhood. On both sides of the coin, my family sings. Uh, my mother and all her sisters and her mother, my grandmother, and my grandfather uh, were great, great singers. Um, so singing was in your house, yes, right? Yes, in my blood. And uh, the different styles. You know, my granny, she came up on like the Patsy Cline, uh Hank Williams era and then uh, on the other side of the coin my dad my uncle Zelber uh was a great influence um, piano playing and singing in my life. So music has always surrounded me.
6: Yeah, I would have say the same. You know, I came from Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And it's interesting as we're here in Bristol, Virginia, I used to come down here as a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah, one of my, uh, I call her my aunties, one of my aunties in the church. Her mom actually lived, stayed here, that she was raised here in Bristol, Virginia. And we would come down and we would have church down here as well when we were in, uh, leaving Washington, D.C. So My mom sang, um, my dad was from New Bern, North Carolina, music was always around, was always around. And country music, you know, as you grow up and you think about it, it was always around you, Mm -hmm. you know, without even knowing that it was there. My dad watching Westerns, you know, my (laughs) granddad watching Westerns. Mm -hmm. And then as I mentioned, coming down here to Bristol, Virginia, you didn't realize that you were coming to the country. You just realized you were coming to see the people that you love, Mm -hmm. family, you know.
7: And gospel, did you sing in the choir?
6: Oh, yes, definitely yeah. gospel music, calypso music, any kind of music was around. <laughs> gospel was yeah. the
5: primary, yeah. and as we all know, everything derives from that soul. Yeah. So, um, you know, um, gospel was just a major influence. Mahalia Jackson, Thomas Whitfield, James Cleveland, Thomas A. Dorsey, and then some of the, uh, the soulsters and that kind of thing Go start getting deep in the southern airs and mm-hmm. and everything. So, you know, music is music, and we love mm-hmm. it, and we're happy to be able to do it today. But you, or both, your heart is your voice
7: or as an instrument, right? More so instrument, guitar or whatever is more to support. Well, I play
5: keys. I don't think that there's a separation in the two because when I'm I'm standing alone trying to sing without the keys, I feel so naked. Oh, interesting. And then when I'm sitting down keys and playing just Mm -hmm. keys and playing for someone, I want to sing. So (laughs) I started to realize that we're just one body. And, um, you know, and and I think that when you talk to at least piano players, like piano singer players, Ray Charles, Mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder, you know, um, um, they'll tell you the same thing. Interesting. And that kind of thing. So, yeah.
6: Yeah. Well, I'm a vocalist, and one of the first things I learned about music was that your voice is the first instrument. It's the first thing that you have as a child to start hearing sounds, you mm-hmm. know, you match that voice to anything you hear. Someone goes, Ooh, you go, Ooh, <laughs> as a child, you know. Mm-hmm. So sound is in and the voice work together. So being a vocalist is that's my, my instrument and I play the tambourine sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but for the most part the vocal.
7: So how do you guys come together and when and
6: well, we were married um, in 2010. Uh, well, we met in 2010. Mm-hmm. We got married in that, that December. We married ourselves. It was, that's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we married. And then three years later, we ended up singing together. So we didn't actually get married to sing. You know, uh-huh, people, yeah. Yeah, they get married and right. become a group. Yeah. We didn't do that. We actually fell in love and we loved each other. And three years later, we started singing together because a friend of ours heard us singing. My brother couldn't make a rehearsal because I was originally going to do a duet with my brother, and Michael was writing the songs Uh for and she heard us, and she said, you guys don't hear that? And I was like, no, and Michael was like, no. And then we went to her church, and we sang a love song in her church, and that was it for us. Wow. Yeah.
7: Like you alluded to, the voice is a classic instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I was in Branson, and there was a band, I think it was Six or something, and they did like a Beach Boys cut, but... The trippy part, it was all voice, drum, yeah. guitar, everything's like, wow, that blew my mind.
5: I came up on a, a band when I was growing up, famous gospel Christian band called Take Six. And they do that kind of thing, you know, like the Manhattan Transfer. You know, they they do all that, uh, that uh, like, quartet, barbershop harmonies or... You know, uh, the Pentatonix, those guys—they do that too. They didn't—they kind of like the new Take Six, but mm-hmm. yeah. Talk to us about your life, your
7: career as singers, as musicians.
5: Well, we've are, been having fun. We've been having a on, lot of. Are you on the road a lot? Yeah, we're on the road a whole lot, man. And uh, this year, we've done a, a couple of cool things. I think none cooler than uh, we were asked to uh, help induct. Ray Charles into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Wow. And we did that on May 1st. That was an honor. That was an honor. It was uh, Betty Levette and Garth Brooks and, and, and Warren Treaty. We were in charge of putting Mr. Charles in there. And um, that was so awesome. And then we turned around, went to New York City at the Lincoln Center, and then did a full tribute for Americana. For Mr. Charles, we did a full tribute there of all his songs. Mm-hmm. And we had Buddy Miller come out. And he sang, uh, Buddy and I sang Seven Spanish Angels. And I guess, uh, you know, I, I was Ray Charles and Buddy was Willie Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had uh, the legendary Valerie Simpson come out. And Valerie, uh, she did a song that she wrote for, for Mr. Charles, uh, Let's Go Get Stoned by her and Mr. Ashford. Uh, that was really cool, you know, Valerie from Ashton Simpson. Uh, but we've been touring a lot. We signed a new record deal this year. signed our first, actually, our first major recording contract with Universal, UMG Nashville, Mercury Records. Nice. So we're doing that. We got label mates on there, like Chris Stapleton mm-hmm. is our label mate. So it feels really good to be in, in that kind of company. And we put out a single uh last week. And a music video, and now we're getting ready to put out another one in, in a couple of weeks here, and hopefully put out a record next year. So yeah, we've been we've been pretty busy. When yeah. do you sleep?
6: When when we can?
5: Can you can you spell it for us? We, we don't really know what that means yet. But no, and, and I think the biggest accomplishment that we've done um, is we have with our career is we've been able to maintain it still while parenting you know we we homeschool our son on the road wow. our baby he's 11 Help. years old oh, okay and uh shout out to legend hello legend and then uh our daughter's 18 and she's actually working for the family business she's our merchandise president mm-hmm. so she handles all the merch for us on the road as well nice this is the first year she gets to travel with us all, all the so talks. she's loving that huh? oh yeah it's her thing so <laughs> and we've been able to have a successful marriage on and off the stage and, and where do you guys happy. live we live in in Nashville, and our parents moved. and We moved in my mom and dad with us. That's a big accomplishment for us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's all music. All that yeah. all that sings harmonic notes. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
7: So when you're performing, when you're on stage, is it just the two of you, and maybe you on piano, or do you have a backup band sometimes? Oh, well,
5: we got a full blown band. Got a, a four four, piece. four up to no good guys <laughs> behind us and. It's always fun. Um, in fact, I will say this, this is the best unit we've ever had and being able to travel with. Mm-hmm. It really, truly feels like family, and um, we love these guys. Well, you're blessed yeah. to have that. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally.
6: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah.
7: So you never, just the two, just two voices on stage, other than... The special events.
6: Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes we do. I think that's one of the things I love about our show, on top of just having an amazing band that plays with us. And I enjoy when Michael and I are able to just have the harmonies, mm. you know, and just enjoy. Well, it. you said, enjoy. sometimes we yeah. do it every show. Yeah. We
5: break our sets down. Got it. Mm-hmm. You know, we start out with the full shebang, and then um, we break it all down to a trio with our guitar player. Mm-hmm. And then you get me and Tanya alone, and then we yeah. build it back up. Mm-hmm.
7: Let's roll back in life. Real curious about your time in the army and in Iraq. Did music stay with you? Was that a part of your solace while you were in the field?
5: It's very interesting because music left me for a second there, and uh, I replaced music with fear, being in the war, and uh, being able to be being that kind of uh, afraid to be out there, you know. And um, but a guy reminded me of the power of music. Uh, one of the captains, and um, came back. You know, I started writing some material out in the war. And um, I then started writing songs for memorials out in the war and asking my unit could I sing. And um, they must have liked what I did because then that became my job. You know, I started writing songs about the fallen, performing them for um, the memorials, and I would do that from oh. 0- 5 to 07 which was my exit out of the military that was it for me
7: and do you go to some veterans events and whatnot still you're still involved. a lot of
5: our shows uh end up being linked to like veteran organizations mm-hmm. um in in 2014 we were we were going out and teaching vets how to turn their pain into music help them song like mary Gaucher does and that kind of thing um, but wherever we go you know recently I think earlier in last year we we did a big old thing uh, for the troops uh, with, with the Grand Ole Opry you know so whatever we do we try to make sure that veterans are represented well and that uh, people understand that I am a veteran through and through you cut me open I believe that
7: tell me a little bit about you, what's closest to your heart in your journey as a couple making music?
6: Well, I think um, one of the things I love about what we do is I've always been a servant. I think music serves the heart. It serves every part of the human, you know, mm-hmm. and we get to do that together. You know, it's, that's what, what makes it so magical that we get to serve people with our music. And watch people change. I got into music because I remember watching my brother. I was about, um, I guess about eight years old. And he was singing in church. And people were like, it's a black Baptist church. So they were all over the place, you know, just happy and shouting and full of joy. And I said to my mom, whatever he's doing to make people feel like that, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. And you were and what, 13? I was, I was eight. Eight? Yeah, eight? He was, yeah. Oh, wow. He was 13. Mm. And now to be able to do that with Michael mm-hmm. is, is amazing. <laughs> Look at this face. I mean,
7: so tell
5: me, what's closest to your heart and sharing? Um, what's closest to my heart is uh, love. Mm-hmm. You shared a story with us earlier, and um, I said, "True love." And not to be a uh, cheesy or anything, but honestly, the closest thing to my heart, to my passion, is my wife mm-hmm. and my children. Yeah. Nothing, nothing gets past that pretty precious yeah.
7: yeah 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 oh my god you guys i could go on all day but they gave me 15 minutes yeah. you, and we're hitting 15 minutes well thank you. thank you no you i've touched my heart appreciate you yeah. mm-hmm. ah, you can't even talk <laughs> you nailed me man. <laughs> to learn more about your world where would you direct us
5: Yep, you can go to our website, thewarandtreaty.com. You can go on all our socials. It's either The War and Treaty or War and Treaty mm-hmm. on any of those socials there. Also, you can go to Universal Music Group's website, umgnashville.com. And, and you like, get some music samplers there. That's right. Yeah. YouTube, everything. You know, we, we're all out there. Once again, my name is Michael.
6: And I'm Tanya.
5: And we are The War and Treaty.
7: I love it and i'm tom wilmer reporting from bristol tennessee and bristol virginia <laughs> i love it we'll see you here
0: This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. Up next, contributor Brian Reynolds speaks with the local author of the new book, When San Luis Obispo Was Cow Heaven. Marilyn Darnell is a historian for the Octagon Barn, which is managed by the Land Conservancy.
4: Hello, I'm Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio over at the Central Coast. Today, we are joined by local author Marilyn Darnell, whose new book is When San Luis Obispo Was Cow Heaven. Welcome, Marilyn.
2: Thank you for having
4: me. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to the place where you would be writing a book like this.
2: Well, in 2018, um, having left the Jack House after 21 years, I was asked to come on board the Land Conservancy, uh, there was an opening for their historian of the Octagon Barn.
4: The Octagon Barn is a part of this of this history. Um, yes. Uh, I don't want to do a spoiler, but it's I, let's just say it's a significant edifice that still is uh, there to remind us of the history of immigrant families and, and the dairy industry. I'm guessing that agriculture uh, in this county has gone through a variety of phases from Native Americans, what they did uh, into the Spanish and Mexican era. Um, And, of course, nowadays we think strawberries and wine grapes, but it wasn't always that way. There were all kinds of crops, uh, including dairy farms, uh, grains, beans, different things.
2: Absolutely. They needed the grains to feed the cows and, of course, themselves. And in the height of the dairy industry here, which lasted well over 100 years, there were thousands, not just hundreds, but thousands of dairy farms that spanned from the north coast, San Simeon and Cambria, which was the, the beginning point of this county um, for dairying, and then went all the way, believe it or not, to Guadalupe.
4: I've heard it said that probably the hardest kind uh, uh, to be a farmer is a dairy farmer because it's twice a day, every day. Um, These were hardworking people.
2: Absolutely, and every day is right. In fact, in my book, uh, you'll read about the Oliveras who uh, were managers of the Octagon Barn and John Olivera, who is one of our old-timers and very experienced, uh, he was a young boy there, and his comment that dairy farmers never have a day off, and they never get to go on vacation.
4: Of course, the cows don't either. (laughs) This is true. The
2: poor cow suffers if she doesn't get milked. Through my book, through stories, that, through interviews that came about, uh, and through history, the child today sees the carton or the bottle in the grocery store, and they have no idea. We don't have any live cows uh, around here now being milked. And so we we kind of have, have lost a little bit about that. All we do have are the the cows that are around that are painted from the cow parade uh-huh. from some time ago. And I really wonder if people connect why we have them. But I mean it's a, to me it's a it's a throwback to, you know, an insinuation that we have dairy history. Right. And yet we have up until now th- from this book, we've really had articles, but This was the first book, and I wrote it because I couldn't find a book locally about dairy, which astounded
4: me. Who were the people uh, that first pioneered the dairies? I know that in your book you talk about the Steele family being established in the uh, Point Reyes area and then exploring Mm -hmm. this area, but they weren't the only ones.
2: No, if there's one misconception out there, I believe that it is the thought that the Steels were the very first dairymen that came to San Luis Obispo. And because of them, we had dairy. That's not true. There were dairymen here already um, for about at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing that comes up in a lot of conversations. And as well in in writing, the steels are always talked about. And granted, it, it's due them because when they arrived, they came with hundreds of cows and made a big difference here. They were the catalyst that kind of exploded dairying on the Central Coast. But they were not the first.
4: I am imagining that the Portuguese uh, dairy farmers today... Uh, in the Central Valley are descendants of immigrants from the Azores, um, which uh, there was a huge uh, uh, migration from those islands to the West Coast. Also, uh, the Italian canton of Ticino, yes. that uh, uh, a lot of Swiss Italians. Uh, yes. Was it mainly those two groups? Um,
2: to a large degree, yes. But one of the points that I really wanted to make in my book by listing groups of people, dairymen, was to show that we had a lot of dairy people come from other states within the United States, as well as from other countries. The Danes were had a, a large presence in this community, and whoever talks about it? Uh, I had to interview a, a Danish, actually a boysen, to learn that. And she was kind enough to point out to me the Anholm track that is between Foothill, and Choro, and uh, Santa Rosa up to the freeway, that whole housing track was called the Anholm track, and that was all Danes.
4: Hmm. Well, they're not very far away in Solvang, and I know exactly. I've seen in the grocery and they were
2: they were um,
4: interacting together. Yes, absolutely. I, I've seen the brand of butter uh, Danish Creamery. Yes. One of the tidbits that I learned a long time ago about, uh, it's a alleged tidbit, I think when i to confirm it right now, is that because of transportation issues, a lot of the dairy products that got ex- most of the dairy products in terms of bulk and, and value were not milk, but were, uh, milk products because cheese travels, and to some extent butter travels, not so much mm-hmm. milk. Mm-hmm. Is, is it true that cheese was bigger at a certain point than just the r- regular milk we drink?
2: In San Luis Obispo County? In the county, right. Uh, I don't believe so. No? I think butter was, uh, always was, the largest. Ah. Because the ratio between the butter dairymen and the milk dairymen was about uh, 10 to 1.
4: 10 to 1?
2: Yes. And very, very few people really went into the the rigmarole of having the regulations and all that came along with being a milk dairyman for the consumption of fluid milk. Right. That was, it was very expensive. It was, they had to uh, be regularly tested their milk for tuberculosis. And so a lot of people weren't able or willing to do that. And so, yes, there was a, a discrepancy there. And so it was a ratio of about 1 to 10.
4: I hear, um, learned years ago that salted butter uh, is salted primarily for preservative, uh, not just for flavor, but the salted butter lasts longer than, uh, I guess, on the shelf. One of the things that fascinated me, you mentioned, uh, was uh, about the milk and its safety in drinking it, which is embedded in a— uh, Probably a social and and a political controversy about pasteurized versus raw, which goes on to this day. I think so. And uh, I also know that in your book, there were dairies that were doing both. I mean, I mean, Mm -hmm. they specialized in either one, but they, but they um, were tested. uh, If it was raw milk, uh, they had to get a certain minimum number of points Mm -hmm. uh, on the test uh, scale. Well, that was to be able to sell it.
2: Right, and that was true for all milk. It had to be tested and if it didn't reach the, the minimum, it was, was not accepted.
4: I uh, was reading an article on the, the youth of um, Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. and he, his beloved mother died, I want to say in her 30s, uh, of what was called milk fever, and some disease that was related to tainted milk, whether well, it was hygiene when it was milked or something that got into the milk after, after mm-hmm. the fact.
2: Well, and that is why grating milk came about because there was a big recognition in the state of New York. And there was a realization that the correlation between what they called swill milk and infant mortality. And so over time, this one man studied over one year how many babies died because of bad milk. Because in those days, milk was only good, only used for infants, and for uh, cattle.
4: Well, or for, maybe invalids. Um, I not
2: I'm sure. not. I can't speak to that, okay. I've not heard that, but... Um,
4: adults did, Most adults didn't drink milk as we do today. Most adults didn't,
2: it was not an adult beverage, absolutely not, and so in this study, they realized, okay, bacteria was at the heart of it, and so what they started to realize was, if number one, the cow is ill, I, I quite honestly was ignorant of how a disease can pass from the cow to the human and vice versa. And it is from the milker, it is from that just that tiny little encounter that it can happen. Hands so fast. on the udder. Absolutely. So if the hands of the milker are not clean, if the udder is not clean, this is why we ended up going to grade A milk for having cement flooring instead of dirt because, let's face it, every cow has a favorite bird that likes to sit on it, and they do their business, they do everything else, they waddle in the dirt, and they get contaminated. Right. Well, then they go in to be milked, and they're carrying all of that with them. It ends up in the milk.
4: Right. And And uh, so
2: all of those measures had to be rectified in order to— Make it safe to drink.
4: I noticed some of the later barns, uh, milking and dairy barns, were made. Um, there would instead of dirt and wood, it would be uh, stainless steel and cement.
2: And that's that's a grade A barn. That's a, a the big difference. investment, I'll bet. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and and that is why the ratio again was ten to one.
4: I'd like to remind everyone, that I am Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX, Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we are joined by local author Marilyn Darnell, who has a new book out called When San Luis Obispo Was Cow Heaven, A History of the the Dairy Industry. What would you say the peak of the local dairy industry? Would it be the late 1890s, early 1900s?
2: It was in the 1930s. And we were number one in the state. In the state. The big three states in at the time were uh, Wisconsin, New York, Ohio, and California. Mm. And San Luis Obispo actually played a very large role in California becoming a milk state. So this is a history that I'm very proud to shed light on.
4: I have to ask, how did it fade so quickly or why did it fade? Was it one thing? Was it eight different things? Was it local versus national? Do you have a, a feel for that on, on
2: I what do. the factors were? Yes, I do. Um, I believe that regulations was a big hit. Then transportation expense. Believe it or not, where we are located in California is not conducive for transportation or to have the amount of area that it takes to have thousands and thousands and thousands of cows in one place like we do today. And so that's why it moved to other places. And transportation in the end became the, the death knell.
4: Affordable transportation and well, reliable. Well, yes,
2: affordable because um, in my, my research, it was actually the Silva family. Dave Silva was the last holdout in 1987. He had only had the business two years handed over to him from his father. And he found it prohibitive to try to transport his product. And he had to go long distance.
4: You know, there's a, a interesting phenomenon about social movements that i read about. Guns, Germs, and Steel is the book I'm thinking about. It's a lot easier worldwide for people and animals to go east to west and north to south because of geography. Uh, the open plains are easy to move, but the popu- main population centers of California are on the coast, say San Diego northwards to San Francisco, Santa Rosa. But it's also the most uh, hilly and mountainous. Uh, the last areas to get um, rail lines or, or highways, Highway 1 is relatively new. So I'm guessing well in the old days it was uh, a lot of it was by uh, pre-1890s by ship.
2: Absolutely. And I'm going to revert back to my knowledge through the Jack family because Mr. Jack for the county went before the big four to finally get the train to come to San Luis Obispo and their big objection was blasting through the Cuesta grade.
4: Right, because of the expense. Now, yes. did I read in the book correctly that uh, another another reason why this book is so good, there's so much related issues that are, were pivotal, but not just about dairying, but that the railroad companies or even consider completing the line over the grade that they wanted a gift of a roundhouse and mechanics shop here in town?
2: Well, they needed land, and it was uh, rancher General Patrick Murphy who had worked with the railroad up north when he was a senator, who finally helped the locals realize they're holding out because they really need land. They can't afford it.
4: You mean like rights of way? and Rights of way. Mm -hmm. That's
2: exactly what they got. Mm -hmm. So once that happened, they had a deal. All right.
4: As we get towards the end of our discussion, what would you say people need to know? What are one or two or three takeaways about the importance of us understanding this history of cows and dairymen and and the dairy industry?
2: Well, I think the mere fact that it is a piece of our, a big piece of our history, like I said, well over a hundred years, that has not been treated in the way that I have brought it, woven it between the decades for, for all this time. The other thing is that I didn't know how to present dairy without presenting the growing up of San Luis Obispo, the development And they coincide. We can really see San Luis Obispo today from this, I think, in a very quick way.
4: This has been Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we were joined by Marilyn Darnell, local author, and we discussed her new book, When San Luis Obispo Was Cow Heaven. Thank you, Marilyn.
0: Thank you very much. You can find the book, When San Luis Obispo Was Cow Heaven, at various local museum gift shops, Coalesce Bookstore, and through the Land Conservancy of San Luis Obispo County. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from one to two in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments kcbx.org